Bibles to the book of Colossians. Um, as we uh, continue our, our study that we started last week, and we'll continue considering Paul's introduction to this book, and a couple verses that we skipped over last week, verses 3 through 5, I look forward to considering that with you. You'll be aided to have a copy of God's Word open and, um, as we just work verse by verse. As you find your way to Colossians, I do want to just echo what Pastor Josh said earlier. We would love for you to give to the persecuted church. Uh, if you have offering envelopes, you'll see a special envelope for that, or you can just write persecuted church in the memo line. Our brothers and sisters um, need our help. Uh, they, are, they suffer uh, far greater than what we're suffering in this country, and so we want to continue to support them. And so uh, please be aware of that opportunity to give um, in support of uh, God's kingdom in that way. And, and also want to remind you that, that this Friday uh, night, as we think about expanding the kingdom of God, there is, of course, as we learned last week, an interest meeting for Lovettsville Baptist Church, our church plant that uh, uh, Pastor Cody is leading, along with his bride Emily. And they're going to meet at Tom and Jaren, uh, Karen Johnson's house this Friday night. You can find more information about that with Cody. And uh, you're, you're going to want to go to that. Maybe you're not even planning to go to Lovettsville Baptist Church. You might just want to attend to enjoy Christian fellowship, hear what God is doing, and encourage those who are going. And so I want to just put that in your heart that you might be able to support that ministry in, in various different ways. And then lastly, I'll, I'll mention, of course, we're worshiping inside today. We, we, we're hoping to be outside, but clearly that's not a possibility. We're going to try one more week next week, God willing, to worship outdoors. And then we're going to, to move our worship uh, back indoors on November 15th. Then November 22nd, uh, we are going to go to two services. Uh, one, a 9 a.m. service and uh, a 1045 service. Uh, we're not doing this because we want to. In fact, I have strong uh, convictions not to do two services. Um, but we feel that it's nece uh, necessary in light of the COVID restrictions. Of course, I know many of you are watching online. Many of you are in our overflow rooms in the chapel, in the fellowship hall, even this morning. Because we all can't fit in here. Uh, and so we're going to go to two services. I'm going to explain more about our thought process and why we're doing that at the members meeting on November 11th on Wednesday. And so I uh, certainly look forward to being able to share some of those realities with you uh, at that time. So hopefully you found your way here to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 3 uh, through 5. Hear now the word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, Father, as we consider your word, we pray for your blessing upon us through your spirit. We pray that I might preach according to the power of your spirit and that we might listen according to the enablement of your spirit. That we might be made more like Christ and that you might be glorified for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this summer, uh, John Blakicki and I uh, took five of our children tubing down a river in West Virginia. Um, my son Josiah was with me, and then we had four small children, I think ages seven to three. And uh, it was a wonderful time, a glor glorious day. The eagles were flying overhead. We had a, just a delightful time as we floated down the river looking for the put-out, the place where you come out of the river and take the, take the tubes out. Unknown to us, uh, we passed that put out. And, uh, and so every minute we're floating down the river in ignorance, 
of course, was another minute that we were moving farther from where we needed to be. We soon began to wonder why the 30-minute tubing trip had now lasted an hour and a half. And so we, we put our collective geniuses together and, and realized we had floated down too far. Now, I don't know, have you ever hiked upriver barefoot, holding rafts in your arms with a three-year-old child screaming, I want mommy? It's not as much fun as it sounds. There's a lot of tripping and slipping and banging your knee and twisting your ankle and, and you know, occasionally, you know, a four-year-old will, will get caught away in this current and float downstream and you'll grab another one and pull them up by their foot and you're just trying to make about a two or three mile trek while these children are weeping and crying and screaming, I want mommy. In fact, I'm pretty sure I heard John cry, I want mommy too. Uh, <laughs> It is a very uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally sanctifying event. And uh, it is one uh, that I think everyone needs to experience. You know, sometimes um, when you want to get to where you need to be, you need to admit you've made a mistake and turn around. That was the content of a radio address that C.S. Lewis gave during the World War II, some 80 years ago. He argued that sometimes progress means doing about face. He, he mentioned, if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. Although that was an address 80 years ago, it seems to be a rather contemporary uh, analysis of our culture. Uh, at least in, in my estimation, I don't know if you would agree with me, but it, it seems that we are on the head of the wrong direction and an increasing accelerated pace, right? And we think we're making progress. I wonder if we're actually doing the opposite. We're actually headed the wrong way, and we are going farther and farther and farther from where we need to be as a country, as a culture. Of course, we might ask the same question about ourselves as individuals. What about you? Are you progressing? I mean, do, do you even have a destination to where you want to be, and are you headed that direction? Uh, last night, uh, Lager and I took our small children through a corn maze. Have you ever done that before? Uh, it's another thing I, 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 I probably don't recommend. Uh, uh, it, it, I figured in my navigational abilities, there should be no problem at all. I was uh, disproven of that within about three or four minutes. We had absolutely no idea where we're going, just uh, running around at an increasingly quick pace and making no progress whatsoever. Until finally someone came by holding a piece of paper and I looked over their shoulder and they had a map, um, which was incredibly helpful as I took a picture of it. Right? But I feel like, I almost feel like that's kind of the, that's the life in which we live. We're just kind of running around, harried, but not making any advance whatsoever. I feel like that might be even said of many churches, if not many lives. 
that, we, that our, our, our schedules are full, we have programs all over the place, that we're, we're doing this and we're doing that, but are we actually making any progress? Well, gladly, I, I'm happy to tell you that the Colossians seem to be. Note again what Paul says there in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You notice Paul praises God because they are abounding in the three eminent Christian graces, faith, love, and hope, as he puts it here. Right? And they are progressing. They have faith in Christ. They have love for others. They have hope for the future. After all, all Christians are believers, and all Christians are lovers, and all Christians are hopers. And so hearing of their progress, you know there in verse 3, he says, I thank God for it. I'm thanking God. Notice he doesn't say to them, good job on believing. He doesn't say congratulations on loving. He, he, it's not as if Paul is slapping them on the helmet and saying, way to win the World Series, as a particular team did on Tuesday night. No, he thanks God that they believe. He thanks God that they hope. He thanks God that they love, which is, I think, somewhat odd, because after all, it is their faith, is it not? It is their love that they have and the hope in which they are, are, are placing in the future. And yet the reason that they believe and the reason that they love and the reason that they hope is because God has done a work in their heart to enable them to do so. And so I think Paul rightly thanks God for what is happening in their lives. I, I kind of wonder what, what would happen if we did this? That when we give thanksgiving for one another rather than, than, than thanking me for a sermon perhaps or thanking someone for a visit or thanking someone for a note that we, we actually thanked God instead. Rather than saying, yeah, thanks for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the note. It was, it was encouraging. What if we said, hey, I thanked God for that note you sent me. I thank God for your visit today. I don't think we lose anything. I think we might gain by having our attention drawn to God as he works in our lives. It's certainly what Paul did. As you see, first of all, he thanks God for their faith. In particular, it seems he's thanking God for a progress of faith. As once again, you note verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So they have faith. Our, of course, our culture likes faith, doesn't it? We're told you have to believe everything's going to turn out all right. Right? You have to have faith in order to get through this. Uh, this is, we, we, we hear this in, in our land. Faith is good, we think. Of course, uh, we're not quite sure why we think faith is good. Uh, you might ask, what, why do we believe it's all going to be okay? Why, why do I have to have faith here? I would suggest to you that faith only has value to the degree in which the object of that faith is trustworthy. And so if you say, I have faith, I think the question then is, some faith in what? Or, or perhaps more precise, faith in whom? The Colossians, you know, didn't simply have a general faith and not even simply a faith in God, but he says that they have faith in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. And so let's just be clear in a day of, of kind of interfaith ecumenicalism in our land that our faith does not simply reside in a God, but it resides in Jesus Christ as he reveals God to us. I only know one Savior of the world, and it is Jesus. He is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. He is the crucified Redeemer, the resurrected Lord, the soon-returning King. And they trust in Jesus, and you trust in Jesus. And it is by that faith you are saved. It is salvation accessed by faith, but only faith in Jesus Christ. And if we have that faith, if you have that faith, as I trust many of you do, you ought to thank God 
Remember, what was the great confession there in Matthew 16 when, Peter, when, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember Jesus' response. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter come to that confession? Only because God had worked it in his life and revealed it to him. Elsewhere, Paul will write, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So I ask you today, my brothers and sisters, do you believe in Jesus? Let me try that again. Do you believe in Jesus? You ought to thank God, therefore. You might even do this this very moment, just a quick prayer in your heart. Thank you, God, that I believe in Christ. I wonder, is that faith growing? Do you find God increasingly trustworthy? Do you find anxiety and worry increasingly a thing of your past life as you lean upon him? Are you progressing in your faith? It seems the Colossians are, and Paul thanks God for that reality. Of course, we might ask, how does Paul know? After all, faith is is hidden, right? Faith is something that resides within the heart. It's easy to say, I believe. We don't always say everything we mean. So how can Paul be sure? Well, faith bears a fruit, namely love. As you see, secondly, Paul thanks God for their progress of love. As we read on in verse 4, and of the love that you have for all the saints. Now, Christians, we need both love and faith. It was John Stott, who I read years ago, probably 20 years ago, stuck with me to this day, who he said, without faith, love grows soft. And without love, faith grows hard. And so we need both, as the Colossians seem to have. And once again, we've seen the origin of this grace is found in God himself. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God because God is love. And so if you love, it is because God has placed a supernatural ability in your life and has placed it in your heart. Some of you can recognize this more than others. Certainly I can, for I came to faith, as you know, as around 16, 17 years old. Prior to that, I was not a a young man filled with love in my heart, but rather hatred. I was a hateful, spiteful teenager. I was incredibly judgmental and critical of those who were not with me, who were were not like me. And yet now, by God's grace, I love and hope to increase in that. And I trust you do as well. You ought not to take that for granted. That is something that God has worked in your heart. In fact, you note verse 8, as we considered it last week, Paul thinks love is actually a gift from the Spirit. It's what God is working in you. And I think love, in many ways, is the Christian's distinguishing mark. You remember on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion after washing the apostles' feet, he then gave them a commandment. He says for, that they are to love one another. In fact, he goes on and says, by, the, by this all men will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's the mark. Love for other Christians. We were having our family worship last night. I asked my children, what has a mane and roars? They answered correctly, a lion. I said, what has a white and black stripes and four legs? They answered a zebra. I said, what has big ears and a long nose? They said, an elephant. I said, what loves other Christians? They answer rightly. Christians do. That's the mark of a Christian. 
that they love other Christians. Lions are marked by their mane, zebras their stripes, elephants by their trunk, but Christians are marked by their love. And therefore, to be a Christian and to not love other Christians, it's kind of like being an elephant without a trunk. If you saw such an animal, you would look at the animal, see the big ears and the tusks and the you know, tiny tail, and you say, well, it kind of looks like an elephant, but where's the trunk? I don't know what it is, but it's not an elephant. Right? And some individuals have a wonderful knowledge of doctrine. Praise God for that. Some people pray fervently and earnestly. That's wonderful. Some people are faithful to come to church every Sunday. Hallelujah, we might say. But that is not the mark of a Christian. What marks a Christian is love for other brothers. And so I tell you, you may know the Bible, you may pray, you may be faithful to your church, but if you do not love other Christians, I, I don't know what you are, but it seems Scripture teaches us you're not a Christian. No, Christians love other Christians. In fact, you notice how many other Christians they love. What, what does he say there in verse 4? Love for some of the saints? Love for most of the saints? No, he says love for all the saints. Not just those who are like us. All of them. Jesus himself would say, if you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? Isn't that how the world loves? Colossians had a love for all. Not just those who cheer for the same team or vote for the same party. All the saints, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, pro-Roman, anti-Roman. They loved all the Christians. All the saints. And I think this was probably radical. I think this was transformative. A community of people united not by language, not by color of skin, not by class, not by political affiliation, but by their love for a savior. And it is that love that they exchanged between one another. If you read church history, that changed the world. It was not the superior ideas of Christianity that revolutionized the Roman Empire. It was the the sacrificial love created by those ideas. And that continues to work its way out. I, I, again, mentioned my own uh, history when I was 16-year-old and walked into a church, as I've shared with you many times before. I immediately identified these 30 teenagers according to their groups that I had learned to identify. Some were cool and some were, some were less cool, right? Some were, some were athletic and some were academically inclined, if you know what I mean, right? And they were all very different, very diverse. And my experience was they're all supposed to be in their own separate groups. And that's not what I found. I found them all together loving one another, interacting with each other despite their uh, diversity. And it was incredibly foreign to me. I wanted to know, what, what has happened to these people? Well, they not only accepted me and welcomed me in, but they told me what had happened to them. They had met a Savior and changed their life and put love in their hearts. This is what God does. First John tells us no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In other words, what John is telling us, and what many of you experienced, is that the invisible God becomes visible in our love for one another. Of course, that love is not simply an acceptance or a warm feeling, but it's a love in which Christ has shown us. It is a sacrifice. It is a selfless willingness to serve and to give and defer. I read of of a soldier who was watching a nurse once clean and dress a, a gangrenous wound of a wounded soldier from the battle. He said to her as he was his stomach turned in the sight, he said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. She replied, neither would I. In other words, she wasn't doing it for the money. 
She's doing it out of love. Reminds me of a more contemporary story of Chuck Colson. Many of you are familiar with, with his ministry and, and how he came to faith just prior to being sentenced to prison for the Watergate scandal under the Nixon administration. And there in prison, his young faith was severely challenged. His, his wife had no idea what this born-again business was going on with her husband. His son was just picked up, arrested on drug charges, and he was languishing in prison, serving this prison sentence and really struggling in his faith. Why would God bring him to faith just prior to all this happening as he struggled to make sense of it? In the midst of his kind of crisis in faith, there were three uh, U.S. senators praying for Chuck Colson why he served this prison sentence. One was a Senator Q from Minnesota, and he actually discovered an old law that allowed an innocent man to serve a prison sentence for another he approached Colson and said, this sitting U.S. senator, let me serve out your prison sentence on your behalf. By the way, I just say as a side, I would vote for that man. Colson refused, but he would testify how his faith was strengthened as he experienced the sacrificial love of other Christians. We're to love like that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's the love in which we have received from Jesus. For the Bible tells us in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, what is it? Christ died for us. That's right. Well, how do we know his love? Is it the pleasant circumstances of our life? Is it the COVID-free days? No. We know because Christ has taken our place upon the cross, that he has saved us through the painful and shameful and bloody crucifixion as he died there, not for his sins, but for mine and for yours. As he would bear the, the wrath of God upon himself for all the sin I have committed in past, present, and future, and for all who would trust in him, and three days later rose from the dead and now announces as the resurrected king, place your faith in me and you will be saved. All of that was an act of love. You so say, why would God do that? Well, at least in some part, it is because he loves you. And the more we become aware of the love of Christ for us, well, the more we will be moved by it, to love like it. And love for other Christians will no longer be a duty to perform, but it will be a new life to live. They loved all the saints. Are you? How are you doing? Are you progressing in love? Are you loving those who are difficult to love? So how can I do so? Well, you might find that hope is the key as we turn to thirdly and lastly. He thanks God for their progress of hope. Their progress of hope. Note verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, you of course know that hope deals with the future. Hope anticipates, hope longs for what is coming. It looks to the glory that awaits us. The Bible says that glory is so wonderful. It is so good, so stunning, so overwhelming that any suffering that may, may be required of us in this life is not worth comparison to the absolute majesty that is coming to us. This is the hope that Christians are have. Of course, we use hope differently in our day. It's, hope today is, is kind of like a vague optimism, isn't it? I mean, you might, for instance, have said sometime during uh, this summer, I hope my team can beat the Dodgers, okay? So, so we, we just call that unreasonable optimism, okay? 
That's how we use hope. Lloyd George said to the House of Commons in 1918, I hope we say that that on this fateful morning came an end to all wars. That's how hope is used, a kind of a wishful thinking in our culture. It's certainly not a, a certainty. Certainty and hope in our mind, at least in our culture's mind, they don't cross paths. If you're certain, then it's not a hope. And so therefore, many dismiss hope. Perhaps you heard the beatitude, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. Of course, that's not how the Bible uses hope. Hope according to scripture, is not a kind of a blind optimism on a troubling day, but it is a confident expectation. It is a certainty. Hope is grounded, it's certain, hope is, because hope is grounded not in our blissful desires, but on God's promises, which are certain, aren't they? We can be confident in them. And so the Colossians, they have hope, and Paul gives thanks for, for their hope as he does for their faith and love. But what I find particularly compelling in this passage, what I'm most excited to share with you today, is that Paul is not simply giving thanks for their hope. He does not say, you read it very carefully, I thank God for your faith and for your love and for your hope. Notice how verse five begins. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So verse four, he gives thanks for their faith and love. And then he says in verse five, because of your hope. In other words, what Paul is saying is that faith, they have faith and love because they hope. Now, I think if we think about this, you might do so this afternoon, we would expect the opposite. We would say, no, 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 you have faith, and that faith leads to hope, which of course is true, isn't it? I mean, faith must precede them all, and faith certainly does lead us to hope. But Paul mentions as a unique reality that turning around, he says, you hope, and there, because you hope, you therefore have faith and love. Hope, therefore, according to this passage, is the trampoline upon which faith and, hope, uh, faith and love jump. It is faith, a hope that is the foundation. And so, listen, I find this incredibly uh, fascinating as I meditated on it. If you, let's say you want to pro, pro, uh, uh, pro, progress in your love, you want to progress in your, in your faith, what must you do? Well, you need to consider your hope, evidently. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, but some people are harder to love than others, right? Some people are difficult. Some people, it may be our personality, maybe them. We want to, learn, want to love them, but we find it difficult to do. How can we find the power to love them? Well, Paul is telling us, in your hope. That's extraordinary to me. So what do we hope for? Well, we hope we'll be in glory forever. We hope that we will have an unending life where righteousness reigns and evil is not permitted. We hope that our bodies will be transformed to be like Jesus' body. We hope that our spirits will be renewed. We hope that whatever trouble or annoyance that, that, that we're facing today, as we've already established, is not worth comparing to the glory that is coming to us. And as we consider that hope and meditate on hope, or as Paul will say in Colossians 3, as we set our mind on that hope, we will soon find ourselves forgetting ourselves and finding an increasing desire to love others. The more you hope, I would suggest to you, the more you'll be patient, the more you will be kind. The more you hope, the less jealous you will be, the less arrogant and rude 
you will find yourself. You won't be so irritable. You won't keep an account of wrongs. You won't be in, you'll be inclined, rather, to bear all things and endure all things. It is John Piper who said, a deep longing and strong confidence and passionate preference for the joys of heaven over the joys of earth breaks the bondage of worldly self-centeredness from paralyzing regret and self-pity from fear and greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience and envy. And in place of all these sins, hope bears the fruit of love. If you hope, you will find yourself increasingly able to love others. Let me give you a couple illustrations of this. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is fascinating in explaining how hope empowers love. It does so in chapter 10 and again in chapter 11. In chapter 10, we find the church in an interesting dilemma. Many in the church have been arrested and they are now in prison. In these days, a prisoner would not be fed by the prison. They would not be clothed by the prison. His family, his loved ones would have to do that, bear that responsibility. But the Christians face this dilemma. If they associate with the other Christians in prison, they risk their own freedom. And so what, what are they going to do? Should they, should they hide and save themselves or should they care and risk everything? Well, note Hebrews 10 and verse 34 tells us the answer. For we read, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see what they did out of their love? They helped those in prison knowing that it would what? Cost them the plundering of their property. This is an incredible selfless act of love. You say, where can we find the power to love so powerfully, so costly? The answer, of course, is in our hope. Notice again, verse 34. They did this sense, he says, or because you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, hope for that better possession broke the power of worldly love for furniture and for granite countertops and for, you know, air-conditioned car seats and for nice houses. Their hope for what God was going to give them broke the binds, the bounds that those things had on their heart as they loved one another even at great cost and risk to themselves. You notice we see this same reality happen in Hebrews chapter 11. Moses, we'll find out, had an option. He could live in the palace of Egypt for the rest of his days or he could lead a grumbling people for 40 years in a desert. What shall he choose? We find the answer in Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses, giving up the palace for a stiff-necked people, where does he find such power? Where does he find such power to trust God in the midst of that, to love others in the midst of that? Well, we're told he was looking to the reward. It was the hope of what God had promised him that he found freedom in order to trust God and to love others. One more example. This one, a personal one. I was studying this passage about a month ago 
in the morning, as I typically do my, my sermon prep in the mornings, and I knew I had an appointment that afternoon with a woman I had never met, never been in a, in a church service that I had led, and that she, she wanted to meet with me to air her grievances concerning a prayer I had offered publicly 10 months earlier. And so finally she, she contacted me and said, okay, I would like to sit down with you, Pastor. I have some problems with what you prayed 10 months ago. Now, it might surprise you that I wasn't looking forward to that meeting. And I actually, you know, you begin to think about that meeting. You think, well, you know, how am I going to handle this and what am I going to do? I actually thought, you know, I'll just let her air her her grievances. I'm just going to sit there and not going to say a word. I'm just going to let it out and say thank you very much for coming and then uh, escort her to the door and and be done with it. That's kind of like a self-preservation strategy. And the more I begin to thought, think about that, the more I didn't like that strategy because I, I didn't think I'm in the wrong. And so then I said, no, I, I think I might just put her in her place, right? And I'll, I'll let her, uh, you know, come out against me, and then I'm going to fight back, and I'm going to tell her why she's wrong and why I'm right, and I'm going to show, show her the errors of her way, right? And so that, we might call that the, the, the arrogant strategy. And then I thought, well, what if I just turn the air conditioning down as low as I possibly goes, Okay. We'll just make this room so unbearably uncomfortable that, uh, that, that it will be a very quick meeting and uh, we'll, we'll get over it quickly. We, we might call that the evil strategy. As, I, as I'm going through these strategies, and I know I'm, I'm alone in these type of thought processes, um, it occurred to me that I could love her. That was number four, by the way. That was not, I just had to say, the first thought that came to my mind. That I could love her. But I didn't really want to love her. I began to think, God, where can I find the power to love her? Well, it's just on that very morning, I am meditating on Colossians 1, 3 through 5. And it's almost as if God cleared his throat, you know. I mean, what what are you planning to preach in a couple weeks? So you know what I did? I closed my laptop. I leaned back in my chair and closed my eyes. And I began to hope in heaven. I began to, to think about, well, one day I'm going to share in the glory of God. <laughs> one day I'm going to sing with angels. One day I'm going, to, I'm going to feast in banquets in a place Jesus calls paradise. One day I'm going to see my risen Lord. And the more I begin to hope in heaven, the more I found my desire for my own comfort begin to fade away compared to the comfort that's coming to me. The more I hoped in heaven, the more I found my desire to defend myself fade away as I knew that God will be my vindicator one day. And, and, and I found in place of those selfish desires, uh, instead a a longing to become like Jesus and to reflect Jesus well. And, and I, I remember, I, I began to smile and think, Lord, I, I want to love this woman. I want to love her. Not I have to, not I should, but I want to. Where does that come from? That came from God as I placed my hope in what he has secured for me. And so just a month ago, your pastor made a little bit of progress by God's grace. By God's grace, I turned around had to hike upstream a little bit. But by his grace, I grew in love because I hoped. I wonder, do you hope? Do you hope? I I feel like of these uh, three eminent Christian graces, hope's the redheaded stepchild, right? 
You, there, there, are, there are books on faith. You can preach sermons on love. But hope seems to be the neglected one of the three. And I think few people passionately delight in the promised glories of heaven. And so here's my challenge to you, Hamilton Baptist Church. What if we committed to hope? What if we committed to take 1% of the time that we focus on things here on earth and instead think about things in heaven? What would that be, a minute a day? Two minutes a day? I wonder what kind of impact that might have on our faith in Christ and our love for others. What, what, if, like, what if you committed why you brush your teeth in the morning and the evening? That's your heaven thinking time, right? Why you wash your beard in the morning, okay? You got those two minutes, you're just gonna think about heaven during that time, right? You think about it one day, I don't know, you might think one day I'll experience no pain. This pain in my back's gonna be gone forever. One day I'll experience no sorrow. You think about the people you might meet or the questions you might ask or the angels you might encounter. You think about the peace, the joy, the love that will never end, the worship in the presence of Christ. Just two minutes a day. Just find a block and just say, this is my heaven thinking time. This is my hoping time. And I wonder if we would change. I wonder if we would see ourselves enjoying progress. After all, as one put it, the mind that contemplates little of the hope of heaven will be shaped little by it. When the Spanish uh, landed in the New World, they brought with them trinkets, little tin cups, broken pieces of glass, and they traded it with the natives living here for gold and gems. You think, why, why would the natives make such a trade? Why would they give up gold for a broken piece of glass? Well, they did so because they didn't know the value of their gold. They didn't have that knowledge. I think the more knowledge we have of the hope that's laid up for us in heaven, the more we will see its value compared to the trinkets of this world that occupy our hearts. And I believe the freer we'll be, free to love others, free to trust Christ completely with all that we need. When you think about these things, you can see why Paul was so thankful for this little church, even as he wrote from a prison cell. This little church in the middle of nowhere, Perhaps not unlike Hamilton Baptist Church. They trusted Jesus, loved each other because their lives were shaped by their hope. May Hamilton Baptist Church make such progress. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this great encouragement that your word brings us. And I do pray that we would, we would be a hopeful people in order that we might love others well, find the power, the freedom that we might trust you more completely. We pray for our friends, perhaps here or watching on our live stream, that do not know this hope found in Christ because they do not have faith in him. We pray that you would help them understand, even now, Father, that their salvation, their eternity, is dependent not upon the life they live, but the life that Christ lived and whether they unite to him in faith. So will you help them trust in Jesus even now that they would place faith in the Lord who has died and has risen from the dead. And even now as we prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper, we remember and rejoice in Christ's work for us. And so help us to remember well even as you come and feast with us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.